This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, who wants to buy an aircraft manufacturer? And we're going to find out if IPC reforms are on the horizon. Also, United Airlines puts more skin in the game on the pilot shortage. And the coronavirus has even affected Asian aviation. Finally, AOPA fly-ins registrations are open. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, contact. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulitz. David, uh, I guess this week, this is a... <laughs> Oh, this is a funny story. This is not uh, a joke. This, this is, is for this real. is a good ending, a yeah. happy ending. Yeah, it is. Um, Jason Archer, uh, he's going to teach us how not to land in a tree. He's going to teach us how not to land in a tree in a Piper Cub specifically, Ian. Okay, that's uh, good. But he has some great takeaways for emergencies of any kind, and Jason Archer is a well-qualified instructor. Okay, cool, cool. Look forward to that later because you never know when you might need that sort of information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hopefully never. All right, hey, let's let's kick it off this week. Uh Lake Amphib, you know them, they're the flying boats. They're cool. They are very cool. The type certificate of Lake is for sale. Well, Ian, I don't have 5 million dollars or so to buy Lake aircraft, but if someone did have deep pockets, they are for sale. And that's a that's a basically it's like a pontoon winged aircraft with a overhead engine. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yep. It is, it is very cool, kind of from the Grumman line of stuff. They're reminiscent. Brian Foley, who you, you maybe if you pay really close attention to aviation news, you'd see him quoted in the past. He's kind of an industry analyst. He's actually kind of putting together this deal, acting as a bit of a broker, and uh, he, which he's done with the Myers. I think we might have talked about that on the show, actually. Uh, this is another one of those sort of, you know, not as bad as the Myers, but a, a type certificate that... Definitely has some value in terms of parts and things like that, but but airplanes haven't been produced uh, very recently. So, Ian, on the Lake Amphibian, that's a flying boat. Mm-hmm. And I think I said it was a um, pontoon, but it really is. It, what, what do you call those, like, spontoons? I mean, what are when they're off the wing? I think something like that. I mean, but, yeah, flying boat, that's right. Now, have you ever flown one? You know, I haven't. I've always wanted to. 
it's interesting there. So, you know, the float community, as I understand it, the, the seaplane community, it's sort of divided into people who like flying boats, even the small flying boats like the lakes and people who don't, who are, who feel like floats are the only thing you can use. So I know a fair amount of float pilots who, who have no interest in flying the lake, which I think is kind of interesting. That is kind of interesting because we recently wrote a story on the Sea Ray amphibian, which uh, Jill Tallman wrote about. Mm-hmm. And that has some commonalities with that, you know, with the flying boat, you know, hull design. It does. And, you know, I guess the Icon A5, it's like, you know, same kind of idea, that flying boat design. Good point. Very good point. Yeah. Now, my favorite thing about lakes, though, is... And I don't know why. I wish they would have done this the civilian version. You know, they also did the Buccaneer. Well, they did, I should say, not also. They did the Buccaneer, the Renegade, the Sea Fury, and my favorite, the Sea Wolf. But that was military only. So you get all of it, though, if you buy the type certificate. That would be great. Now, what about the Myers line? Now, this is kind of an interesting an interesting package also. I, mean, I don't know much about the Myers aircraft. Do you? Yeah, I mean a bit. They they look a lot like a Navion, actually. So the the 400 and the 200, I think the 200 might have been the more popular version. As I understand it, they were in a couple of movies, maybe like a James Bond movie, which, you know, sort of ups the panache a little bit of it. But um, but yeah, they're not terribly popular. But I think, you know, there's a few out there. And when you talk about selling parts and trying to get some value out of it, it's it's there's probably something there. So now, Ian, is it does it look anything at all like one of those uh, Mikos, uh, M-I-C-C-O? I'll probably mispronounce that, too. But I know they were trying to resurrect that brand out in Florida some time ago. Yeah, I don't know that one. Huh. It was like a, an aerobatic aircraft, and it has that same kind of a Navion look and feel with the bubble canopy. Okay. Uh, and so this is, is one of those things that I kind of I thought the Myers had some type of relation with that aircraft. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm looking it up, and you're right. I mean, they do look very similar, don't they? Yeah. But yeah, huh? That's pretty cool. So anyway, yeah, if uh, if you're into type certificates and uh, and looking to sell some parts or, you know, whatever, Lake is is on the block, as is Myers, and, and Brian Foley's your man. And Brian Foley knows all, so give him a call. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Hey, okay, moving on. IPCs, this is, you know, the bane of every instrument pilot's existence. Uh, these are for folks who, if you have an instrument rating and you're not keeping up with that currency on approaches, uh, you got to do an IPC eventually to get current again. And these have changed in the past few years in terms of what's required, and AOPA is pushing to make even more changes. And the reason why we're trying to make some of these changes, Ian, is to kind of keep the cost of flying down. So have an IPC in a training device. Now, by training device, we're talking about a full-fledged simulator. Uh, This would kind of keep the cost down. You wouldn't have to get in an aircraft, and you could stop and start at will and really, you know, have some of that, that teaching soak in a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think the rationale here is that, you know, if you're going to sims, you can really I mean, you know, you can get quite a workout in a sim. So it's not like it's lesser of an experience than the airplane. Speaking of a workout and Jason Archer, I was sweating uh, coming out of a simulation, <laughs> a simulation set up with him when he was at uh, EAA AirVenture and he was uh, an instructor. And honest to goodness, it put me through the paces and one of these full motion simulations. I honestly was sweating when I came out of it. Yeah, yeah. So you can, I mean, anyone who's been in a Redbird or any other sort of immersive simulation experience, you know, yeah, they are quite realistic. And so AOPA is saying, you know, one of the hangups to this, to being able to do a full IPC and an ATD is circling approaches. Well, how how often do we use circling approaches? I mean, you really, that's not a, it's not a great safety 
type of approach to do. I know no. people are very wary of that. It's not. And of course, uh, you know, a lot of commercial operators don't even do them. They're, they're not allowed to do them in their op specs because they, they recognize the risks of those. And But I guess, you know, to the point, it's like if you're going to do them, you got to practice them because it is definitely a, a skill and a very specific skill. So, but yeah, AOPA is saying that stuff can be done in a simulator. There is no circle to land requirement in the regs for an IPC, although in the past it has been sort of in some of the guidance, like it was, you know, in the PTS and that sort of thing. So we're saying, AOPA is saying that it's like, nope, you should be able to do the entire thing in an ATD. No reason you need to get in an airplane. And and one of the reasons is that you're really being reviewed during an IPC, not just on, you're really not on the landing itself, Ian, but on the transition from flight solely by instruments to visual flight. So that's the key. Yeah, absolutely right. Which, of course, in a sim, you can practice perfectly that you can't necessarily do on a nice day under the hood. So. That's right. Yeah, hey, so moving on. Now, this is something that you've really been keeping an eye on, David, and that is the pilot shortage. Um, a couple of bigger announcements recently involving United and ATP Flight School. Yeah, Ian, United Airlines, basically, they're taking a more hands-on approach to solving the pilot shortage. They partnered up with ATP, and also, United purchased an Arizona flight school. And so these two um, initiatives really are going to go a long way towards helping solve that pilot shortage. At least United thinks so. And Ian, i got to think that if United heads down this path, we're going to see a lot more movement with some of the other big carriers, Delta, American, Southwest, et cetera. Yeah, that is interesting. You know, I mean, some of the other airlines, it's like you've There'll be partnerships. I mean, JetBlue's got its university. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there, some others have kind of, you know, stepped their toe into it. But United, I mean, buying a flight school, it was Westwind, right, in Arizona. Yeah. So, so yeah, United yeah. actually purchased, Lock, Stock, and Barrel purchased Westwind School of Aeronautics. That's a Phoenix based flight training academy. And, and so, you can see that that's going to be an immediate influx of, of future pilots, flight instructors, and really a pretty robust flight training curriculum has already been out there for a while. Yeah, and so you're almost moving, I mean, without the regulatory framework to to be able to do this, you're almost moving to like the European style where, you know, the airline trains them from day one, ab initio from day one to their standard, their style. It's like there's a lot to like from an airline standpoint with this. And and as a student, I guess my biggest question would be, okay, I go to this flight school, I pay United all this money, what does it do for me? You know, does it get me in the door faster? Do I get my sort of seniority number from day one? It's like, what is it going to offer me and why would I want to go there? Well, it does. It actually it answers those two questions that it does get your foot in the door. If you obviously if you keep your nose clean, you do your assignments and you're a good pilot, then you do have then basically they give you an interview at the end of it if you meet all the requirements. So that is indeed a foot in the door. But, you know, there are a lot of other incentives as well, Ian, with United and ATP with another ATB program that they inked with SkyWest and also at Mesa Airlines, basically it's tuition reimbursement time for our flight students. So you know how expensive it is to go to school and uh, the presidential candidates are already on the Democratic side. They're talking a little bit about forgiveness from uh, from debt, things like that when you're going yeah. to college. But so this is yet another way. So you'll get you'll basically get your tuition back as long as you stay in the program. And, it's, and uh, as you conquer these hours, you start getting the money back. That was amazing. You were telling me that with one of these agreements with ATP now, that one of these regionals, if you sign, and now this is this is not one of these programs where it's like you pay for all your training, then you become an instructor at the school, and then they might give you an interview. This is like you walk in the door, sign your name to that regional, and they, what is it, they give you a check like almost immediately. 
Yeah, I was just talking with Michael Arnold at ATP. And by the way, Ian, we're going to try to get Michael on as a future guest here on Hangar Talk. But basically, he's their marketing director, but he's also an ATP qualified pilot and an instructor. And so he said that if you saw, if a student signs up with Mesa for their pathway program, a regional carrier Mesa, they get ten grand right off the spot. They get twelve thousand five hundred dollars in tuition reimbursement, and that's as they log the hours. It's getting paid back to them. And then when they finish all of their training and they've gone through the program, and basically they're a graduate, and now they're going to be a pilot with Mesa. Then the airline hands them $12,500. The difference It's a $35,000 sign-on bonus, and that's a, wa- that's a whopper. I think that's a game-changer. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, I just, I mean, I guess if, you're, if you've come into aviation recently, this is maybe what you expect these days. But, man, I remember when I was thinking about flying for a living, and it's like the airline career, it was, it was dismal. I mean, you could have, you know, there were guys with, like, three, four, 5,000 hours who are not getting calls from regionals and, you know, people out on the street and people working at, you know, selling houses or in finance or something just to be able to make ends meet. And to see it today, it's, it's, it just defies belief. It's, it's incredible, the turnaround. It is, it is. And uh, ATP has jumped into it really in a big way in 2020, Michael Arnold said, and uh, I don't see them slowing down or stopping anytime in the near future. And they are, they're a pretty, a pretty big powerhouse in the flight training community. And you know, they've got, got almost 40 locations around the U.S. Yeah, they've got almost four, almost 400 airplanes. And we covered uh, a Sun and Fun press conference last year where they inked a deal for 100 new Cessna 172. So, they are not letting grass grow underneath their feet at all. Yeah, amazing, amazing stuff. Hey, uh, let's move on to a, a more global affairs now, and that is these Asian air shows. You mentioned coronavirus, of course. I'm sure that everybody has heard about the coronavirus at this point, and it is starting to affect aviation and, and the air show market, actually. It has indeed. Well, we know it, it's affected aviation in the transportation market, but in mm-hmm. the couple couple of big air shows that are that are happening over in Asia, number one, the Singapore Air Show, which is going on as we record this hangar talk between February 11th and 16th, has been way cut down. It's been cut down with about 70 fewer exhibitors and just scaled down to the public these days. And that's one of the things that we're seeing right off the bat, Ian. So that was one of the bigger shows that you would look forward to uh, in the Asian market. Yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, they, they whether because they were expecting fewer people or because they were, you know, trying to actually control the crowd, they've decided that, you know, attendance is going to be way down. They're going to be offering fewer tickets on, like, I think those days that you see big military demonstrations. These, these Asian shows, as I understand it, are like, they're kind of this hybrid between commercial, general, and, uh, you know, government aviation, where, You've got, so you know, especially I think, you know, the Air Force and the Navy, they do demonstrations over there as, as shows of sort of regional air power. Yeah, sort of the, the, the show of force, basically. Here's what we can do. Yep, yep. But then you'll have business aviation and uh, helicopters and everybody else actually trying to sell stuff. And so, yeah, they have scaled down. I saw one, a reporter who I follow on Twitter that they are giving away masks. Oh. Yeah, to, I, I don't know if it was in the press tent or to uh, all the attendees. So, yeah, people are definitely thinking about it. And now the other big news, of course, is that NBAA, which does an Asian show called A-Base. A-Base, um, yeah. Yeah, they, they actually canceled this year's show. And that was supposed to be April 21st to the 23rd. And so uh, I am surprised that they just flat out canceled A-Base over in Asia. And that's a big deal because, I mean, that's a business aviation convention. And that's high-dollar items. We're talking about the big old Gulf Streams and uh, Bombardiers and things like that. So that really drives the market. 
Yeah, I mean, they, and you know, we're not talking really tiny shows here. I mean, they had 9,000, 10,000 people at these 50 countries in that region. That's a big deal. So yeah, this this coronavirus definitely having a fallout here through business and general aviation. And we'll have to see what happens, I think, over the next couple of months in terms of commercial aviation. Because like you said, we're, we're definitely seeing impacts there. And I've seen a lot about, you know, we're just talking about the pilot shortage. It's like things like these, you know, global pandemics, I mean, they have a major impact on the on the pilot population in terms of airlines. The other thing besides airlines, I'm thinking that, you know, our general aviation world, Ian, might be affected with that, too, because a lot of the metal, you know, a lot of the steel comes from China. A lot of the aircraft companies that are here in the States have some Chinese investment. And so I'm just wondering how that's going to affect the workforce. Are we going to start to see shortages? Are we going to start to see, you know, things trickle in a little bit slower? And some of the bigger companies, I mean, even Cirrus has some Chinese uh, aviation um, experience and some, some Chinese investors. So does, so does Mooney. We've talked about them in the past. Of course, they shut their doors a little while ago. So we've got we to wait and see what else happens. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Hey, bringing it closer to home now, the AOPA fly-ins have been announced for 2020 and registration is open. So that's right, Ian. So we've got three fly-ins this year. I'm going to go ahead and take the first one. This is a little bit unusual for us. We're basically co-locating our event with Go Wheels Up in Texas. It's a major air show, car show, and music festival. So it's going to be the 2020 AOPA fly-in at Go Wheels Up in Texas. And that's going to be in San Marcos, Texas, May 29th to 30th. Yeah, so this is a cool event because... Yeah, they're going to have, it's going to be a car show, like you said, there's music. And and so I am not a Texas music expert, but as I understand it, it is, a red, it's called Red Dirt Music, I guess, which is sort of an offshoot of country. So they're going to feature those and obviously a lot of cool barbecue and that sort of thing. So just a, a, a way to kind of amp up that fly-in experience. There will be a gate charge for this one because of the Go Wheels Up event that's going on with it. Is It's going to be 15 bucks for two days, which is a big deal over the um, a big bargain over the regular price of the event. It's about about 70% less, actually. Yeah, you get yep. a great deal for going. Yep. And, uh, yeah, there's going to be the stole, you know, invitational and... Workshops and seminars, the Rusty Pilot Seminar, the Pilot Town Hall, all the great things you expect from an AOPA fly-in. Yep, absolutely. So now in June, June 19th and 20th, it's going north a little bit to Casper, Wyoming, which should be a really interesting show, I think. If you haven't been to Casper, it's a cool town just north there of the border. So that's going to be, like we said, June 19th and 20th. And so make your plans for September 11th and 12th to join us at the AFPA Fly-In in Rochester, New York. Ian, this is going to be a really cool one, too, because we're not going to be that far from Niagara Falls. There's some talk about maybe having to fly out over the falls. We'll have to wait and see. But, but again, workshops, seminars, rusty pilots, and pilot town hall, you know, that, that awesome Friday evening cookout is just the stall event. All those are just really, really fun events to attend. Yeah, you got it. So, hey, go to AOPA.org. Under the Community tab, you will see Fly-Ins, 2020 AOPA Fly-Ins. It'll give you all the information. You can register in advance and look at where to stay, you know, the flying procedures, the whole deal. So, yeah, we'd love to see you there. Hey, moving on. Can't wait to hear about Jason Archer and his experience with landing the cub in the tree. And like you said, more importantly, uh, and not just necessarily, but uh, yeah, emergency preparedness and how important that is. Jason was really good. I can't wait for our listeners to learn from his experience.
Welcome to Hangar Talk, Jason Archer, and we have you via Zencaster today. I'm calling you from Maryland where it's snowing. What's the weather like where you are at Great Barrington Airport? Well, hello. It is uh, overcast and snow is forecast for later this evening, so... Uh, we got we got winter weather all around, but look, we're going to talk today, and we're going to have a little chat about something that happened to you. First, let me introduce you as a CFI. You and I met at AirVenture a couple of years ago, where you put me through the paces on one of the scenarios that we had at the Pilot Proficiency Center, and then uh, you and I have been keeping up with each other a little bit. I know that you're a tail dragger pilot. Of course, you fly a lot of other different kind of aircraft. Jason, I hate to ask, man, but as a fellow off-airport landing comrade here, tell us about landing in a tree in a Piper Cub. (laughs) Sure. Well, I I don't recommend it. (laughs) You can only do it once. The short of it is I'm an instructor at Great Barrington uh, Airport in Massachusetts, and we do a lot of tailwheel work. We have J3 Cubs. And so I'll spend all weekend long in a Cub. And this was my last flight of the day. I'd been training um, in this particular Cub. It's a 95-horse Cub, a 1946 Cub. And been training in it all day long. Last flight, this gentleman wanted, he had 100 hours. He had never been in a Cub, and he really wanted to check it out. So we went up, and we're only about 10 or 20 minutes or so into the flight. And what I usually do on an intro flight is just kind of give them, get the person comfortable with the aircraft. And we do kind of a scenic tour. If it's up in the Berkshires is where we fly and there's mountains and fields and lakes and it's really idyllic and it's beautiful to do the low and slow flying in this area. So that's what we do. And I kind of have this route. Anyways, 20 minutes into the flight, the engine just goes quick, quiet, no bang, no sputter, nothing. Just it was there. And then it wasn't. What altitude were you at, Jason? Approximately. Yeah, we were about 2,800 feet or so on the altimeter. So we were only uh, about 1,000 feet AGL or so. Okay. So it's pretty relative, relatively rolling terrain in that area. Yeah. And it's out, if you Google, you know, your look on the map, you'll find Great Barrington. And it's about eight miles south. There's a mountain range that I had my student take a right turn to head over this mountain range, these beautiful ponds. And I thought, well, let's just go over the mountain range. We'll come up the other side and go back to the airport. He makes the turn, the engine goes quick, quiet, and I took over the flight controls, obviously, and... Now, you're, you're flying from the front or the back of this Cub? So, yeah, great question. I fly in the front, the student's in the back, and that's due to the, um, if you're going to fly solo in a Cub with the fuel tank being up front, weight and balance, you got to be in back. So we train with the students in the back. This particular Cub, mind you, had the modification that had wing tanks. Ah. So it didn't matter as much, but, you know, wanted to give them the vintage experience, right? So after the engine goes quiet, I there's I went through the, the, the flows. Carburetor heat is usually, carburetor ice is usually the primary reason there's a, some sort of engine roughness or loss of RPM or even a failure in a Cub. Carburetor heat comes on. We had us. I could switch tanks, check the mags, work the throttle back and forth to see if I could get anything. But you know, it really just felt like there was nothing left there. Pitching for best glide, and if you're not, so the area is very. It's it's hilly. I don't want to say mountains because they're just big hills, right? It's all trees. Lots of trees to the left. Miles and miles of trees and woods to the left. In front of me is a lake, and then there was a small field just to my right. And it's funny, like instinct is go for the field. Right, sure. 
Yeah, yeah. And if you do your training and your best option is a runway as an airport, then you want some sort of flat field and then a road and then trees and then, you know, water is pretty much your last option. It was funny. I looked at the water and I'm like, oh, it's really flat. You know, there's that instinct to just go to where it's really flat. But obviously in a tailwheel airplane, that's a bad, obvious, bad, bad, bad choice. So I didn't do that. Anyways, went for this field, knowing this field was much too small, but there was really no other option. Went for the field. And once you go for your spot at that altitude, I couldn't really make another choice to say this wasn't a good choice. Went for the field. Well, you don't, you don't have much time. Let's, you know, for folks who haven't had an off airport landing, you know, it seems like the clock stops, but really you don't have a whole lot of time if you're only a thousand feet above the ground. No, you really don't. Um, and, you know, if you check the, the the kind of the rule of thumb in like a Skyhawk or whatever is for every thousand feet you are, you get about a mile and a half, right, of horizontal distance, right? And, you know, we were at gross weight. So, and I could feel the airplane just wanting to, you know, gravity was doing its thing, right? Um, you come to this field and I'm looking at the field. I'm like, this is not going to work. It's way too short. And I look beyond it and there's trees but I also noticed there's houses I'm passing and I'm fairly familiar with this area. And there's this community on the top of this mountain that there are part-time community. There's a few houses, right? There's no electricity up there. I think they have running water and, and whatnot. And I decided, well, I'm not going to do the field. I'm going to land in the trees. So I didn't want to go anywhere not towards a house or anything like that. And luckily that wasn't a factor. And I picked a tree right in front of me and I mushed the airplane into the top third of the tree. And it was quick. It was, uh, it was a quick stop, loudest thing I've ever heard in my life. And it was all, you know, the, up till now, uh, you know, once the failure happened and into the tree, it was really autopilot instinctual what happened as far as how I did the things that I had to do. And I can talk about the, you know, what I think made this successful. Anyways, we impacted the tree, top third of it, a single cherry tree come to find out, grabs the airplane and stops it. It's probably doing 50 miles an hour or so. So you're pretty, you're going slow. You're the stall speed in that airplane is about, I mean, is it as low as 40, 45? Oh no, stall speed in that, and the Cubs about 39 miles an hour. 30, 39. Okay. So a little bit less than that 39, but you're, you're going about 50 now. So a little bit faster than that. Yeah. Well, we're a bit heavy. It's got the, it's got the, the wing tanks in it, so you got a little bit heavy. It's a bit heavier, so you're going to be a little bit faster in your your best uh, glide speed, which I was. And then I'm at this point. There was a, a I could see there was a house on the other side of these trees. Okay, okay. The trees like along this dirt road, and there's a house on the other side of it. And I'm like, I don't want to end up on the other side of these trees. I if I choose to fly, I choose to put myself at take that risk, not anybody else, right? Oh, right. I under, now I understand where you're going. Yeah, right, sure. right. So, you know, we make that thoughtful decision that I'm not going to put anybody else on the ground at risk when I choose to, to go aviate, right? So I aimed at this tree. So I was probably a little faster than I might have if I could have really kind of stalled it in. But that was my thought process. And I, but luckily enough, a single tree, a single cherry tree, it turns out, grabbed the airplane and you can see pictures online and all that stuff if you Google Catherine's report. It's now a swept wing cub. <laughs> yeah, from 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 now on forevermore, right? Yeah. Right. Well, that's so, pretty funny. Now you're real circumspect about this, Jason, and this is something that you know I appreciate your good humor, and we we are going to have some takeaways from the conversation. But this is a harrowing event for a lot of people, and this is this is a pretty tricky thing to land. You know, pick out a single tree. 
you know, a cherry tree and they're, they're not as big as like an oak tree or a maple tree. Maybe George Washington knew a little bit more about cherry trees or more <laughs> forgiving or something. We, yeah. So yeah, it, I mean, there, there are takeaways and I, I do presentate, I, you know, I want to, as a CFI, I'm, I'm, I wanted to, to give the back to the community having gone through this. So I do lecture on this fairly often to try to give people the insight as to what, you know, what's the process when it really does happen. Cause the, the reality is, is quite a bit different than the training and the, the practicing for something like this. Absolutely. Now, first of all, before we go further now, you were not hurt, right? Look, some scratches maybe. And how about your passenger? Yeah. So yeah, just to, so that the cherry tree grabs us, the wings go back. Um, so it's a swept wing cub. The tail was pierced almost like you, you know, I landed on a deck of an aircraft carrier. The tail was pierced by the branches and the branches caught the tail and the tail snaps off. Okay, or breaks at a 90 degree angle. Now it doesn't separate from the aircraft. Those two things stop the airplane in pretty qu quick order in a single tree. We're 10 feet up in the tree, and that was my most scary spot, right? All right. Like, so now, how to now Tom Horn here at AOPA wants to know how you get down out of the tree. And he wants to, from now on, from now on, he wants to know do you. Do you carry a rope or do you have a climbing harness or, I mean, you know, we're being a little tongue in cheek about it, but, but how do you get down? I mean, you're stuck. You're the tree, the tree has pierced the airplane and then you're off the ground now. Yeah. Well, we're sitting up there and I'm fine. A little bruise on my leg, my student in the back who, you know, I'm pilot in command. I'm responsible for this individual. He had a little cut on his head and that was it. So luckily I said, mentioned before, there's a community up there, part-time community. They happened to be people up there and somebody happened to be home and saw us go by his house he saw this yellow streak and then he said i heard this loudest crash i've ever heard in my life he comes running out with a ladder <laughs> oh well that's a good thing yeah now having said that i'm sharing this story with other fellow uh, aviators i've had people come up to me and said you know jace when i flew cubs in this area, this area, I would carry a rope with me. You're, I was teasing though, but you're for real? For real. And I've, since this happened, I've had quite a few people come up to me, says, you know what? I've had a similar experience. I've landed in a tree. In fact, we've got a pilot at Great Barrington who, when he was a kid, he was 17, eight years, 18 years old, just got his license. He ended up in a tree and a cub too. Wow. So that's how we got out of the tree was this ladder. And, um, it just, you know, that there's, it just happened to be lucky that there was somebody there. So now you're, you musted into a tree and what was it a violent stop? I mean, I mean, the tree's yeah. going to give a little bit, but you're, you're not going anywhere all of a sudden. Yeah. You know, it was a, it was a, a crazy hard stop. All I remember is the branches in front of me when I, you said, well, this is it. And you know, they, they say, and this is true. And I do, I do teach this that you fly the airplane all the way into the accident, as far as you can into the crash. And I think Bob Hoover said something similar. He did. You don't stop flying. So my feet are on the rudder and rudder's hands on the stick. And my hand, I think, was even on the throttle just because it's habitual, right? Sure. And I just flew it right into the tree. And when we hit, so there's a lap belt and then there are shoulder harnesses. There was an aftermarket shoulder harness put in in the Cub, which we never wore because you couldn't reach forward in the back to get the carburetor heat. If you're familiar with Cubs, the carburetor heat is on the up front 
on the left side of the front seat along the, the, the wall there, the aircraft inside. And in your, if you're solo in the back, you have to lean forward to engage the carburetor heat. So with the shoulder harnesses, you couldn't lean forward far enough. So we just never wore them. From the back seat. Gotcha. Right. And so I didn't have it in the front seat either. They always got in the way and stuff like that. And we didn't need to have them. We just had to have the lap belts in. So my torso went, you know, crazy forward. Sure. And so did his. And if and if you know about Cubs, they're they're cramped in the front. So I spend my weekends with my knees up in my chin. Right. Sure. <laughs> you know, you you know, it's it's you got to do special yoga to get in one of these things. And yeah, you do. You kind of have to use your. You have to use the. The rails, I guess, part of the tube, aircraft tubes, I kind of lift myself up and into the seat. You got it. You got it. We call it cub yoga, and there's no graceful, beautiful way to get in a cub. But, hey, it's it's part of the the, the, the awesomeness of flying these aircraft. Part of the allure, and it's a, they're great aircraft. I just truly love it. They really are. I, you know, even after the accident, I can't speak more highly on, of a cub. I'll take cubs. I mean, I've got hundreds and hundreds of hours in these aircraft and this, these airplanes, and, and they're very safe, very reliable, very maneuverable, and you can really put them where you want. At any rate, having said that, yeah, and he did the same. Now, thank goodness he wasn't wearing his shoulder harnesses because when the wings came back, the roof, okay, of the airplane, the roof of the fuselage collapsed. And if he was wearing his shoulder harnesses, it would have pinned him back, and it's likely the wings, the, the roof of the aircraft, would have hit his head and perhaps snapped his neck. Wow, Jason, that is unusual. Wowie. Yeah, it, it really is because, you know, if you look at the, you know, we teach this and, you know, these airplanes can handle you know, a good nine G's worth of forward impact, right? And you want your shoulder harnesses to absorb that forward uh, impact, right? And the fuselage and the wings take it. The lap belts, you know, they're it's it's the shoulder harnesses that do it for you. And we weren't wearing them and it just worked out great. The same with me too. I was fine. That's unusual. I would say that that's uh, it was a lucky break Yeah, uh, that you, that you guys were not wearing those the shoulder harnesses. That's, that's kind of unusual. I'm a proponent for shoulder harnesses and it's interesting that you had something to say about it in this particular case. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I'm a proponent too. And, you know, the Cubs back in, you know, the 40s, they didn't have them. It wasn't um, installed equipment, just the lap belts. And we have our other Cubs don't have the shoulder harnesses. And you're right, uh, David, it was just, I, I think there's three things that made this this successful. And one of those three things, and I, it was just, it's a little bit of luck goes a long way. It does. It does. Now, look, you have a great presentation on this. You know, I know we've got, we've heard a lot about how you um, pick the spot and how you want to avoid other individuals because it's you as a pilot, as a CFI, you know, you're in command. You don't want to involve other people in this kind of a, um, incident or accident. But now you did a little bit more research on the reaction and the startle effect. And you shared a little bit of this with me with some keynote slides. Do you have a minute to tell us a little bit about how the brain functions in this kind of a deal to help other pilots sort of recognize what we're, you know, possibly looking at? Yeah. So there's the, the what the, and it's talked about quite often enough, it's called the startle effect or startle response. And, you know, what happens, it's kind of like, think of it as you're your, a fight or flight uh, situation. So your, your body, there's, there's going to be a physical and an, an, an emotional reaction when something happens. And, so in the startle effect, it's an automatic 
reflex that is elicited by exposure to something that's sudden, something that's intense, something that's outside your expectations, something you're not prepared for. And the reaction is varied, can be varied. There can be a delayed reaction, okay? You can act inappropriately. In other words, you you react to a situation as opposing as opposed to acting. And that reaction can be something that is not going to be helpful to get you out of a situation, okay? Whereas you might want to act and think about what you need to do. And they've done studies on this, and there's there's a fair amount of accidents. Um, I present some in my case of of a pilot's reacting instead of acting. You know, the, the Trans-Asian Airways flight 235, they, they shut down the wrong engine. Remember, they had the failure of one. Yeah, so that's a reaction instead of an action. Right, and they, they reacted, and that's part of the startle effect of not taking what I would call the pause, taking the moment to go and assessing what's happening. And, you know, I can't, you can't fault pilots for doing it. You can't fault people because nobody gets into an airplane wanting a bad outcome like this. Right. It's not a deliberate act. Although we do train for engine out, on takeoff, land straight ahead. Absolutely, we do. And in my students, we it's called the depart. You know, I, I all of all my students, and I do it too. And, and we do a, a departure briefing, um, and we plan for the that scenario of what's going to happen when we're low and slow transitioning from slow flight, climbing out to getting high, where we have more options, and that's a critical phase of flight. And we prepare for that. We've kind of front load it, and we run through a, a debrief for that. So that's one way to mitigate this startle response when things like this happened. So there's that, there's plenty of training, there's being proficient and current in the aircraft. So, you know, as far as takeaways go, what I like to tell my uh, people when I talk about this is that one, we want solid training, okay? Right from the beginning, the rule of primacy, we want solid training right from the beginning. We want to be proficient in the aircraft we're flying. Okay. We want to know the numbers. We want to know how to handles with engine out. We want to be practicing engine out, power off 180, steep sprouts to land, things like that. What is our best glide? How does that best glide at different weights? Um, what is our minimum sink? Practice that. Figure out what it is for your aircraft. And it might be different if you have a passenger versus if you don't have a passenger, if you're heavily loaded with fuel, if you're not heavily loaded with fuel. So these things you must take into consideration. Absolutely you do. Absolutely do. And you need to, to practice this and think about it. grab a CFI and go up there and practice these scenarios, these, these what if events, because they can happen. It's unlikely, but they can. And the third thing I say is, you know, like I said, a little luck do- goes a long way. And I think those three pieces kind of came into play in my situation. And I'll tell you, when the engine quit, and it, like I say, it was quick, quiet. There was no indication that anything was about to happen. It just was there. And suddenly it wasn't. As soon as it happened, I went into automatic mode. I took a mo- I went for best glide, you know, the ABCs. As far as when this happens, your best airspeed, best field, and checklist, right? Oh, I like that ABC, airspeed, best airfield, and checklist. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah, and you can expand it farther than that, and then you can go D for declare. You declare an emergency, which I did try to do. We did have a, we do have handheld, and as soon as I figured out what was happening, where we were going, you know, I called out a mayday. Nobody heard it because it was a handheld radio, but I did declare. Then you could do ABC. That's D E. Think about exiting the aircraft. And in my case, 
it was so quick that I couldn't really prepare him the way I would have if I had time at altitude. And that's part of the pre-flight you should do with your passengers before you go. If you're taking somebody up new, how do you work the seatbelts? How do you open the door? I mean, these these airplanes can be complicated just to get the door open, right? Um, and for somebody who doesn't fly like we do regularly enough, they're not going to know there's a latch above your head if, if you're in your piper as well as the handle. And a, and a cub makes it even more complicated because you kind of kind of do, you contort your body to get out of this. Yeah, to kind of lift that window and then drop that, that right side door. Right. Yeah. Now, this is also a gentleman who, this is his first, and this did run through my head. And it's amazing, David, how your brain will run we're working like quick order really fast when these things happen. And I remember going, I'm going to go for the lake. Right. And I'm in, in, as soon as I said, it, I'm like, that's a bad idea. Right. Ter- terrible idea. Terrible idea. Terrible idea. But there was that p- component of me that said, Oh, it's flat. I want flat. And that's where I say, I took the pause. I took the breath and said, no, Jason, that's a bad idea. Okay. And the guy, the gentleman who checked me out in these airplanes, the Cub, a wonderful, wonderful pilot. Uh, he could do anything you, you could think of with a Cub. He's now flying for a major airline. Dear friend of mine, our very when we first started training, he's like, Jace, there's a lot of trees around here. If you ever have a problem and you, you don't have a field, an a option, a road option, another airport, land in the top third of the tree. Well, the top third of the tree. And think about why the top third of the tree. and and. By the way, that key popped into my brain immediately. He was right there with me, as well as my other primary instructor. When I got back into flying, they were both in the cockpit with me. And I'm like, where did you guys come from? (laughs) You know, at that point, it's really about protecting yourself, protecting your passengers and the people that are on the ground underneath you. The airplane can be rebuilt, whatever, right? Right, right. And it's amazing how my CFIs, when I was learning to fly, were right there with me. When I got checked down the Cubs, he's like, land in the top third of the tree. And that came back. And it makes sense. The top third of the tree, you've got a lot of thin branches, right? You've got a lot of them. Maybe a little bit more cushion. Right. And you're going to get more, uh, you're going to have more material, if you will, to absorb the impact. And more give, more give too, a little bit more flexibility. Yeah, as opposed to landing lower, you know, deeper into the trees where you got the bigger, the thicker around the trunk of the tree, the roots of the tree and all that stuff. You don't want to do that. That's a hard impact. And it, it absorbed it. And I think my biggest concern was that a branch was going to come through the skin of the aircraft. And that's the risk with the cups. It's a fabric fuselage. And would I be able to move my body out of the way and not get pierced by something? Or my passenger get impaled or something by coming through the skin of the aircraft? That's serious. Um, that, I guess, is just... It just lucked out. It just it just worked out. That was the luck part of it. But the fact that you had in your mind your CFI with you from when you were a young pilot pup, you know, <laughs> tell, telling you to land in the you know top third of a tree, I think that's really good information. Out of this conversation, that is a key takeaway. I also really like your A, B, C, D, E, and F checklist. E for emergency communications, F for fuel and fire to reduce the possibility but um, airspeed first, best field, checklist, ditching preparations, uh, emergency calm, and then fuel fire. That's really easy to remember. Yeah, it is. And I, I think the other thing I was, I was going to mention was when I 
was thinking about the my student in the back and him getting out, I was concerned that you know, depending on where we end up, he's not familiar with the aerobics you have to do to get out of this airplane. Right. And, and as you mentioned earlier, there could have been other structural damage that would have prevented him from even getting out of that aircraft. Yeah. And I, 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 I ran, it's funny. I ran the scenario, man, what if I did end up going into this, this lake that was nearby, you know, we end up upside down on our backs in the water. Hopefully we're not, let's say we're not knocked unconscious from the impact we're going to be disoriented, right? Maybe I can get out because I'm some I'm familiar. I've, you know, I've never evacuated an airplane in the water ever. Right. And I hope to never do that. But then I'm thinking, and this, by the way, and I'm bringing this up because it's, it was amazing. This all ran through my head while I thought, Oh, we just land in the water. And all these thoughts, like, you know, we're going to end up upside down. Maybe I can get out, but he's not going to be able to get out. And Oh my, I don't want that all this stuff ran through my head in like short, short order. I was like, wow, the brain can think fast. And what I teach my students is, is you want to be prepared. You're always prepared. And, and I hate to think about the worst case scenario that could happen, but that's kind of my job. Right. And after the accident, we landed in this rural, you know, wooded area with just a few houses. How are they going to find us now? How are they going to find us after this accident? Right. We were lucky enough that people were there and available to make a phone call to call the, the police and the fire and the ambulance and all that stuff, which we did get taken away to get checked out, right? And we, were, we weren't admitted. We were fine, right? But I'd like to teach my students, think about what could happen, the terrain you're flying over. If does something does happen, are you able to survive in the woods, in a field, right? Are you dressed prepared? You're dressed appropriately for the weather. Do you have water on you? Do you have maybe a little bit of food? Do you have a flashlight? You know, do you have ways to communicate outside of the radio of the aircraft in case something does happen? Think about the terrain you're flying over, the weather conditions, and the time of day or night, right? And it just happened that one of my friends were able to find us on top of this mountain with minimal cell service. I had the friend finder app on my phone still on from Oshkosh. Oh, I so gotcha. if you want me to talk about like the post stuff, what happened afterwards, which is kind of cool. I called the airport owner to say there's been an incident. Well, an accident, right? He's like, the world's coming at you. Are you okay? You know, and within 30 minutes, I think the, the emergency crews were there. But next thing I know about the same time, my, all my friends show up. I'm like, how did you guys find out where I was? And they're like, oh, we found you, your location on your iPhone friend app. <laughs> Social media is uh, to the rescue. That's pretty interesting. Really? No, really. So yeah. I've been telling people that I'm like, hey, it works. Yeah, it does. Now, speaking of works, uh, now the engine did not work. And this is a real serious thing. Now, obviously you had a major problem. In your case, you had, on mine as well, you had catastrophic engine failure. This is not something you could have predicted done anything about what did the NTSB find out about this aircraft engine? And this is probably a year after it happened or more. Yes. Um, and the probable cause the, from the NTSB and the actually not probable, it is the cause they disassembled the motor. Um, and what they revealed was there's a gear that comes off the crankshaft. Okay. And it connects to the magnetos that gear fractured in flight. Now, there's that gear, there's four screws that retain the gear to the crankshaft, okay? The bolts were all safety wired together and in place. But as I understand it, when they 
most cubs are 65 horse. They upgraded this to a 95 horse. When you do that, you're supposed to put in a dowel. Like a pin, like a retaining pin. Yeah, it's a retaining pin. It was, And, and that's to take care of um, kind of shear force, the back and forth of the gear, right? And that dowel was not installed. And after three or so hundred hours on this motor, it just sheared itself apart. The gear was in three or four pieces. That is unusual. So someone along the line of modifying the engine left out an important step. Yeah. And when we got the airplane, you know, it's where we got a great maintenance shop. The airplanes are taken care of on site. We did not do the overhaul of the motor. And the gentleman who did the overhaul, he's not with us anymore. Great mechanic. We don't, we don't know why he didn't do that. We, we have no idea. We have no idea. So it's not something in our case that you could have, or anybody's case, you would have known ahead of time. It's that risk component of what we're doing. We do everything we can do. We follow the proper procedures, checklists, flows, training, and sometimes things just happen. So after, so after the crash, let's bring it back to all the, all these rescue people are coming besides your friends and local people who helped you get down, were you taking a look at, you know, other official agencies that were there to help you out or ask you questions? Yeah. Yeah. And then that's, that's important to know when this thing stuff happens is not to what is going to happen afterwards. And these people are here to help you and support you. And that's the reality of it. Interestingly enough though, um, within 10 minutes of the accident getting out of the tree, my phone rings and it's from an Atlanta number. Oh, the the FISDO. Yeah, man. I've had one of those calls also. Yeah. I'm like, I I haven't, the only people I've talked to is my, my boss at the airport. That's it. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I actually said, I can't talk to you right now. I'm sorry, because I, I'm pilot in command. I'm responsible for this aircraft. I'm responsible for my, my student. And I said, I will talk to you later. <laughs> but man, the FAA found out real fun, real quick. So the, the fire crew showed up, the state police showed up, and an ambulance showed up. And, you know, it becomes an accident site. So they, I don't know what they do to the air. There's also a fuel spill too. So the next day, the uh, EPA showed up as well to contain the spill. And it, it's a cup. It wasn't on a lot of gas at all. So that's who showed up afterwards. Now, how do you deal with the FAA? I mean, they're not out there demanding your logbook right there. They At least they weren't for me. No, no, they weren't. And they weren't there that day. And I didn't even talk. I don't believe I talked to them in that day because I was taken off to the, the hospital to get checked out. And that's not where my head was at at that point. You know, I'd have obviously never something like this has never, ever happened to me. And I was had other things on my mind. But it was the next day, so I called. I called you guys. I called the AOPA. I have the legal services. I told. Oh, good. I like that plug. That helps. No, you guys were great. It was a wonderful resource. I immediately. This is one thing, though. I would say, and I do tell in my seminars, document what happened as soon as you can. Get it all on paper. It doesn't have to be clean. It doesn't have to be in order. But just brain dump on paper what happened. The weather. The time of day your altitude, your airspeeds, anything you notice about the the airplane, what you did, what you were thinking, all of it. Just dump it. That's a key takeaway. Really is. And then you can come back the next day and put it into some sort of post-flight debrief that you can statement that you're going to give to the FAA. They are going to want a statement from you as to what happened. Okay. Don't implicate yourself. Don't take, you know, you know, but be honest. Don't lie. 
Stick to the facts. Stick to the facts and be honest about it because, uh, you know, I've, I'm a fast team rep. I'm a lead rep here in the area. I deal with the FA. They really are here to, to support and help you. And that's what we want. We want honesty. So do that. Um, AOPA was wonderful in that. I did that. So it was the next day. The FA was on site and I got to the site and we got the airplane out of the tree. We got a local crew to get the airplane down. And that was something to see them cut this airplane out of the tree. And oh, it. bad, man. I bet you had a crowd there watching. Um, we There were a few people, but it was uh, here's the other thing. It was so remote that, believe it or not, they had a state police gentleman stay the whole night because it was immediately on the news. And that was a tough call. I had to call my family because it's, you know, it's about an hour from where I live. I'm calling all the family to say, you're going to hear about a plane crash. It was me. I'm fine. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> That's a key takeaway. Let your let your folks know. Very good point, Jason. Yeah, it is. Let, let your family and friends know you're okay. And I did because the news, as you know, the media is going to grab it real quick and they're going to get it right or wrong. You know, they're going to, and that's, that's, that's what it is. And, but I did do that. Did you talk to the news media at all? I did not. I did not want to. That is the key takeaway is to try to be careful about what you're saying because for insurance purposes, this could come back to haunt you or, you know, perhaps for a violation from the FAA. Yeah. And that's, that's absolutely right. And I, you know, I work for a flight school and I'm mindful of the, 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 the flight school uh, I work for and they are, I love them to death. They're like family and they support me. I support them. I want to also make sure I do right by them. Right. Absolutely. Professionally. That's another takeaway too, is do not, do not be afraid to declare the emergency. I think that's a key takeaway, Jason. I think that I'd rather declare an emergency and be down and talking about it later, you know, than than suffer the consequences, which could have been severe. I've I've declared a few emergencies in my day, and there's there's never been fallout for it. You get you get priority from ATC. You get the world. You get everything you're going to get need, and you've got somebody out there watching you, helping you. Do what you need to do. You're going to get services on the ground, fire crews, all that stuff. And and I've never had to do paperwork. Okay. You had another key takeaway uh, during this conversation, which is get it, you know, get your stuff down and then take some time, maybe a day or so to put it in, you know, thoughtful order and then make sure all your paperwork is together. And that is pretty key to someone who hasn't had this kind of an emergency just to get it in order be careful about it, um, but just be honest about it. Absolutely. I mean, you do, you can fill out your NASA form, which I did one of those, you know, that's for things that are inadvertent and, you know, accidental incidences, but it, it is a good practice to do it. And when, you know, the FA was there on site, actually the next day we couldn't touch the airplane, we couldn't touch the motor. And they found out once they got the airplane down that there was missing compressions on for half the cycle because of what happened. So there were no compressions. So they immediately realized there was some sort of engine problem. They didn't know what it was. They, the, they assumed, and this is not, um, I'm not trying to say they're doing anything wrong, but they did make the assumption that I ran out of gas. That would be the first thing that, that would come to most people's minds. And we want to make a point that that definitely was not the case in your, in your accident, but that does happen a lot. Yeah, and I think from the the 2001 to 2016 accident report, the top number four is in in accidents. Number four is fuel related. So you're you know perfectly good airplane. Why is it now in a tree? I would think the same thing. I would go to oh 
fuel exhaustion, fuel mismanagement. It's possible in this case, it wasn't. But they pulled me aside and interviewed me afterward, uh, on site the day afterwards. They interviewed me and they wanted to know, where did you get your weather from? Did you, you know, the airport provided a fuel sample, so that wasn't a problem there. And then I had to tell them what happened. And I was very honest and forthright with what happened. They presented the Bill of Rights beforehand to make sure, you know, this is the Bill of Rights. You have rights here. They, they did that even before, right before they started talking to me and interviewing me. Filled out a little bit of paperwork, or they filled out the paperwork. And I submitted to them the next day, the day afterwards. I said, I do have a written statement. I will submit that to you. And they said, great. So I submitted that. And then it it um, nothing ever happened after that. Yeah, it went away. And that's a that's a good thing. And let's, you know, go on to say that you have flown many cubs since then. I think you actually ferried one from uh, where you guys are at your home base down to Florida and back. I know you've ferried other pipers for sure. I've, I have, I've yeah. watched some of your photos. I've seen some of your photos on social media and kind of wish I was there with you. But it, did it make you a better pilot, Jason, or did it freak you out? Or did you have a little bit of PTSD? Uh, great question. I'm going to say, yes, it's obviously, I think it, ma- it made me a better pilot. I, I'm a little bit more thoughtful about what terrain I'll go over and the altitude I'll do it. I'm maybe more conservative than I was before. I've actually taken what I've learned and I apply it to all my students now. And it has a little bit more weight when I talk about emergency situations with my students. Oh, he's done it. Okay, we maybe we should listen. <laughs> the PSD component, yeah. I'll be honest with you. And the last talk I did, which is only a few months ago, at the end of it, I had a lot, other pilots were sharing their experiences of emergencies they've had in flight and how they felt about them afterwards, kind of the emotional component afterwards. And it shook me up, obviously. When it happened, I never thought about that, oh, this is it. Um, This is my last day on earth and all that stuff. Or... I never thought about it while it was happening. I just did what I was trained to do and it worked out. It was afterwards when I'm sitting there looking at the airplane in the tree going, wow, is this real? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it probably took you a while. I'm going to guess it took you at least a couple of days, if not a couple of weeks to get your nerve back to go flying again. I was back in an airplane in 24 hours. That's amazing. I'm impressed. Yeah, well, so yeah, it, it is what it is. I, it doesn't mean I'm any more whatever than anybody else. Um, borrowed a, a friend of mine's airplane for the weekend to be up there. So it was up there. I had to get his airplane back. But anyways, I went up with our chief flight instructor and she sat in the right seat and PTSD, right? Here, here's the kind of the story is we're in the pattern. I said, listen, I need to get it back on the horse. And all my friends and colleagues up there were like, whenever you're ready, we're here for you, Jason. Any one of us is going to fly with you, whatever you need. Okay. I got a lot of support. And this is the other thing I want to say. When this stuff happens, don't don't be afraid of how you might feel and the emotional uh, effect of it. You know, grab your friends, grab your family, share what you're feeling and what you experience. Don't hide it. Get it out there to help you process through it. There's nothing to be ashamed of when you have a situation like this. We're human beings. It's part of who we are, right? And everybody handles these near death, if you will, experiences or, you know, these dramatic experiences, however you want to uh, label it in different ways, depending on our 
makeup and how we were brought up and how we handle this stuff. My point is don't, don't hide from it. Don't run from it. Get the help and support you need. Okay. Cause it's all good. It's all okay. That makes sense. And I actually, it'll help other pilots too. And you do, we do have a lot of support within the pilot community. Yeah. And, it, and everybody's made up different. I, you know, I'm, I'm wired that it's my fault. I did something wrong. Jason, you messed up again. That's just my, my stuff. Right. And I, it took the owner of the airport and to, to, I had to pull him aside and he, he had to really sit down and said, listen, Jason, you are, you are a rock star right now. You did absolutely everything right. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And it took, you know, a, a, a real sit down with him and him sharing experiences he's had, you know, but it, you know, it's a good human connection happening there, right. To sharing these, these, these experiences with that we've had. It's, it's, it's that human emotional component, right? I like the fact that we're talking a little bit about how to share, you know, with your with your pilot community and how to get the word out and also look at support from from your family or I mean, some people might need some professional help too. It depends on the situation, but absolutely. The bottom line is to share the share the information and in fact, you you do share this even to this day. You do some seminars where you bring up you know, how to, how to successfully land in a tree. I know it's tongue in cheek, but you really do have a lot of great information, which we heard about today, but we're trying to help other people out and try to take them through that. Cause I got to say, Jason, it, it's gotta be a small number of pilots who are, who have ever experienced an engine out, you know, and more or less, not just an engine out, but an off airport landing during an engine out situation. Yeah, it's, there's not a lot of us out there. Um, and and oh, what I was going to say is follow up on the kind of the PTSD component. My 20 flight right after the accident with our chief CFI, she's flying from the right seat and we're just in the pattern at Great Barrington. She turns on base, con, you know, configure the airplane. She turns on base, the nose drops and the trees just started rushing up at me like I was right back and I was, I just remember pushing back into my seat, like away from the trees. And it was just this physical response that, that I didn't even think about. It just happened. She's turning on base. The trees are, we're getting lower, we're descending. And all of a sudden I felt like the trees were just rushing right up at me and I'm backing myself up in the seat of the airplane. So when you're flying again after an accident, something like this, I mean, well, Let's back it up. When you were, before you chose to land in the tree, you pushed the nose of the airplane over and you are obviously in the best glide situation. Whereas a lot of pilots, even commercial pilots that are career pilots have done the wrong thing and pulled back on the stick or on the yoke. So how did you, you know, take us back to the very beginning, you established a best glide, you made sure that you, you found a, a spot to land, but and then how did you keep an eye on the airspeed or the best glide? Or how did you even just know to keep pushing forward and not instinctively pull back when you're seeing the trees come up at you? It's a really wonderful crush question because one of the leading, actually the leading cause of fatal accidents is loss of control. And when this happens, you're right, people will react and pull back. And next thing you know, you stall the airplane, the airplane spins, and then you have no options. Okay, especially low to the ground like we were. How did I? How did I do it? It, it? I was proficient in the airplane and solid training, and it just came back that I need to get the nose down. I need to maintain flying speed and convert that my altitude 
into that potential energy of that altitude and kinetic energy and forward motion. And I just, it just kept coming back to me. Keep flying the airplane, keep flying the airplane, keep flying the airplane. I was very, I had to make a right turn to the field. And I remember thinking, be coordinated, be coordinated with that. So I'm picking my aim point. I'm checking the airspeed, picking my aim point. I'm kind of scanning back and forth. Meanwhile, and it, in a cub, we go, there's a flow, okay? There's a right to left because you just flow right to left, carburetor heat across the instrument panel, come down to the other side, to the left side where we can check the fuel, the mags, and that's kind of the flow. So I remember my left hand up flipping from left tank to right tank to both tanks. Just to check. Sure, just to make sure that wasn't it, right, yeah. Right, while, <laughs> while I'm maintaining airspeed, keeping the airplane coordinated, looking out, and going, okay, that's where I'm going to go. Keep flying the airplane. That, but it, we teach it day one. There's an order in which you do things. Aviate, navigate, then communicate. And in this situation, it, fly the airplane. If you can't do anything else, fly the airplane. Keep flying the airplane. Don't stop. And that's, that's kind of what came in. And that's, I guess, I would say how I was able to do it. And, you know, I teach enough, I train enough, I fly enough that I understand that I need to keep the airflow over the wings. Well, I can't do that by yanking back on the stick. So keep flying the airplane, Jason Archer. And that goes a long way. Like you said earlier, solid training, be proficient in the aircraft, which you just mentioned, knowing the normal flow, the emergency flow and the procedures and knowing your numbers. And then you, you said one of the other takeaways, you mentioned a couple of times, you said a, a little luck goes a long way. So I'll go with that. Yeah, it it's just, how would I have known to pick that tree? I don't know. The, the owner of the airport who's, you know, he flies for a major, major airline and he's got zillion hours and he's like, no, Jace, I don't buy that. I say that all your training and everything you've done and how you do it said, put you in that right spot. It puts you in that tree. It you know, and I'm like, well, I, I don't know. The tree was the right tree. <laughs> How was I going to know? I don't know. You, you know, picked it, the right tree, the right, the right time, and you used a lot of your your uh, right training. Now, how can folks get in touch with you, Jason? Say they want to take uh, some lessons from a CFI who's been there and done that. And how can they find you? Um, I do train out of at Berkshire Aviation. We're located at Great Barrington Airport in Massachusetts. Okay, we do have a website. It's BerkshireAviation.com. And you can find me and the other instructors through that site. We do train regularly in Cubs. It's an idyllic little airport. It's, uh, it's a beautiful spot even just to come visit. Everybody's always welcome at Great Barrington. Yeah, anybody's happy to contact me. The email is jasonarcher at rocketmail.com. That sounds good, Jason. And so they can find you at Great Barrington Airport, jasonarcher at rocketmail.com. And, you know, I appreciate you sharing with us. And this has been a, a great experience for me, for folks who haven't experienced an engine out or an off airport landing. Listen, just like you said, you've got your A, B, C, D, E, and F. So if you can follow that, that's uh, some good takeaways. You gave us a little bit of background on how to deal with emergency personnel, FAA, and, uh, and other officials. That was really helpful. You gave us great information about being prepared, knowing your airplane, knowing your numbers. 
do you plan on being back at, at AirVenture doing the pilot proficiency stuff that you did a couple of years ago? Yep, I will be at AirVenture this year. I've been doing that for the past five years in the Pilot Proficiency Center, working with pilots in the Redbird simulators and offering scenario-based training there. So you can come visit me there. So that's a good spot for aviators that are listening. They could make plans to meet you at AirVenture, the Pilot Proficiency Center. I totally recommend that they take advantage of that Redbird simulator and some of the simulations, some of the scenarios that you might get into. You probably don't remember this, but when we were doing it together, I actually was trying to pick an easy one. And you're like, hey, David, man, you're in here. You got all this equipment. Pick the hardest thing you can do, you know, and try <laughs> try to do that. And um, and I did. I tried to, to use that as a, a key takeaway to learn something new. So that's always good to hear about. Jason Archer, you've been a great guest. I appreciate your time. We spent a lot of time today um, talking about emergency scenarios, but I, I really do feel like you had some great takeaways for our listening audience at Hangar Talk. We're very appreciative of you coming on. Well, I thank you very much for inviting me. Anything I can do to help other pilots uh, become better pilots, that's what I'm here for. And uh, I'm, I'm, I thank you very much for the time. It was a great, great chat. David. So now I feel prepared. If I ever have an emergency and the trees are coming up and they're getting big, I think I know what to do. <laughs> you do know what to do, Ian. And Jason did too. I was really happy that he was able to, honestly, to happy that he was able to tell us about this tale. He brought home some really good takeaways, some emergency procedures that we could all use in our daily flying. And uh, we're really glad to have him come and explain that to us on Hangar Talk. Yeah, that's right. Hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twomley. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tillis. Don't forget, you can find us at alpa.org slash hangertalk. We're at the Sporties Takeoff app on iTunes and on Spotify. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly. <laughs>